Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Morning, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. Well, we had uh, good weather over the weekend, did we not? Beautiful sunshine. Wow, it was uh, springy like. I think it, uh, but it's going to get a little chillier toward the end of the week, I believe. According to the weatherman, yeah, we're supposed to have now below average temperatures after having above average temperatures, which means we all wind up kind of in the middle. Wow. Well, it's kind of like the stock market. The old, <laughs> the weather kangaroo is hopping about. Speaking of the market, uh, there's a tech-led bounce occurring today. The NASDAQ up. 124 at this hour, and the Dow Jones up 126. I got to tell you, speaking of the kangaroo, I've seen reports of late from those who were predicting a 20% drop in the market between now and the end of the year. And just this morning, Morgan Stanley's economists come out and say, a rally is in store. So I think it's safe to say that's what makes the market. It's buyers and sellers. Somebody expects it to go one direction, and another person expects it to go in a different. So there you go. What does that mean? Who knows? That's why they call it a market. It's pretty cool in that respect. You know, this past Friday, we were pleased to have Senator uh, Jeremy England on the program and appreciate him coming on. Of course, he's from the Gulf Coast. And a couple of things that I didn't get to, I noticed on the ceasefire text line, that somebody said that they were skeptical about voting for the senator, but uh, a constituent, but that they are, are pleased they did and that the interview sort of solidified their decision. I just wanted to pass that on. Something else I did want to pass on, on a bit more of a personal note related to Senator England, and I haven't known him, but I guess since he um, ran for uh, for election, uh, he's, a, I believe, a freshman senator running for re-election. But every year, you know, there's a, um, a veteran cemetery down on the coast, and every year, the senator will take his uh, his young son uh, to the cemetery. 
on Memorial Day, and they place little American flags on the various grave sites in the cemetery. He knows about my father-in-law. I uh, posted on Facebook a couple of times my father-in-law's involvement in World War II, received the Distinguished Flying Cross, was up for the Medal of Honor, the highest military honor that can be bestowed. And he just reached out to me randomly a few Memorial Days ago and asked about where my my father-in-law's grave site would be located in the cemetery. And he was kind enough and, and has been ever since to place some, an American flag, a small American flag. At, uh, Mr. Charles Gill is his name, a World War II hero, folks, from the United States Navy. And is always good about placing a flag there. I just want to share that. That's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, my wife, when I shared that with her, shed a bit of a tear to know. And she sent a picture of him and his young son by Mr. Gill's uh, cemetery grave marker there. He, no doubt, part of the greatest generation, an American hero involved in sinking the unsinkable Yamato the battleship Yamato. Just want to pass that on. Appreciate that. So over the weekend, CPAC. You catch any of that, Rhino? Mm, bits and pieces, not live, just in social media snippets. I was busy watching racing. Yeah, I knew you would be. Um, <laughs> well, the polls out of CPAC come out, no surprise, Donald Trump, 62%. Ron DeSantis, not present at CPAC, received 20%. I don't know who Perry Johnson is. Who's that? A candidate for president? I missed it. That name rings a bell, but I'm having a hard time putting a face with a name. Um, 5%, garnered 5%, and then... Nikki Haley, 1%. 1%. I also heard that, of course, Trump was the head of the show. Did you see the report that Nikki Haley was literally accosted by some uh, very staunch Trump supporters and uh, out in, like, in the hallways there? And aides had to escort her into an elevator to escape the uh, the very rabid Trump supporters. You see anything about that? Well, I was just looking at why I recognize the name Perry Johnson. Oh, okay. Yeah, and what's it's up because with that? he got disqualified when he was trying to run for governor of Michigan. Ah, didn't know that. That would be the only reason I would have recognized his name. Okay. I did. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. That's weird. I did so I was shocked to see him in the CPAC poll results. Little shocked to find out about that. Must have done done a lot of politicking at CPAC while he was there. I reckon so, because he got more than Nikki Haley, who I think is a, certainly a better known name at a minimum. I mean, she was the governor of a state, and ambassador during the Trump administration? I mean, you can make all kind of assumptions, but I would presume that if DeSantis had shown up, he'd have gotten higher than 20%. And I don't really see CPAC and the people that attend CPAC as being the most staunch Nikki Haley supporters. Right. I would agree. I'd 
little surprised that she went, I think. Um, of course, DeSantis and I believe Mike Pence headed to the Club for Growth event, which was occurring at the same time in South Florida. Club for Growth, of course, a, a very large political action committee that uh, primarily focus on, focuses on economic policy and uh, candidates that are in alignment with their economic philosophy. I think that's fair to say. But uh, so you got DeSantis and Pence down there, Trump, of course, at CPAC, as was Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I really do feel like is lobbying to be Trump's VP pick. What do you think? You think she's kind of positioning herself for that? I think she would like it. I don't think she's on his radar just yet. He really? Because I don't think she would bring him votes. That's, at least at this point. I would tend to agree. In fact, she may. If you think about, again, folks, the I mean, path, go back to when he when he started off in 2016. He brought on Pence as a VP yeah. to kind of assuage some of the fears from the more traditional Republicans that didn't necessarily want to back a newcomer. I think that's true. So he made a strategic decision to get more votes with picking Pence. Is he going to make the same strategic decision, or is it going to be a more personal decision? That's a good point. Uh, and, and typically, that is the, the way you go about selecting a vice presidential pick. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's one that just is totally in your court philosophically. Uh, of, of course, you generally want someone that's not going to be counter, have counter viewpoints. But then the other important critical aspect of that, as you indicate, is who, who can help with the votes, who can help draw voters. And in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, again, thinking about the path to the White House, which runs through a handful of counties at the end of the day, given the electoral college structure, and a handful of counties is in states that can go either way. And does she help or hurt there? Because the other states, pretty much a foregone conclusion, both both for the Democrat and the Republican candidate. It all boils down to about four states and in a few counties within those four states. That's where the election is won or lost. Does she help or hurt? Uh, you would think it'd be prudent to find a candidate as a vice presidential pick that could help. In those counties. Not sure she could at this point. The uh, former president also espoused some of his policy positions and his vision for the country, should he be re-elected. And some of those were rather interesting, to say the least. Rhino and I were talking about this before the program. We'll run through those. We've got Senator Nicole Akins boyd on at 11.05. A lot of stuff going on with the legislature in session. We'll get to as well. It's a busy day here on Midday. Stay with us. Everybody wants you. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Well Studios. We uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It is middays. It's a short show day, Monday. Coming up at noon, it's Ricky Matthews with Super Talk Outdoors. And then once again, Senator Nicole Aikens-Boyd on the program at 11.05. We'll get an update on the 2023 legislative session, see where we stand with respect to Medicaid and postpartum care, some of the bills that she is focusing on. You know, before we get to that, a little review of of Trump's policies, uh, policy proposals, I should say, that he discussed in his hour and 45-minute speech at CPAC. I mean, you'll have to give the guy this. He's, what, four years younger than Biden? But looks more like 15. Physically, his stamina, his energy, it's incredible for a man that age. Relative to Biden, where Biden really shows his age, first when he's walking, would you think, I mean, when you're sort of shuffling along there, and you just see that. And then the second thing is, a shot from the side of of his head. It, I don't know why. Just he just looks physically older. But a couple of the policies. One that got my attention. The Trump discussed perhaps more than any other policy. It's no secret that the world is concerned. Not just this country, but the entire planet about the um, the slowdown in propagation. We've talked about that before. we got two very densely populated nations in the Pacific Rim, specifically China and Japan, who for decades had policies and uh, honestly, uh, that I should say dissuaded reproducing so as to not pressure the scarcity of resources in those nations. And, Rhino, honestly, I'm not sure we know all the penalties imposed by the Chinese communists for those who violated those policies. I mean, I know abortion was widespread, right? Yeah, mandatory abortion in some instances. Right, especially if it was female Fetus. Correct. Yeah. So who knows what else they did, because they don't operate on a very transparent basis, as we know. And if you try to expose them, you're likely to find your head chopped off. That's how communists operate. But now they're incentivizing their population, their childbearing population. We need more youngins. Because our population is aging, and we've determined that it, for, for decades it's never a problem. All of a sudden, wow, we're getting older, and we're not replenishing the supply of humans that we need to, oh, I don't know, work, because they're physically able, and to a great extent, no different in this country, shoulder the cost of the benefits for those who are retired 
That's the way Social Security and Medicare work in this country. Same deal. Those who are paying in are paying for the benefits of those who are presently receiving them. So Elon Musk has even said, we're running out of people. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it's pretty close to that line. Recent polls show that only 40% of Americans at childbearing age, I think between the ages of, if I'm not mistaken, 28 to 44-something polls show, that only 40% intend to reproduce. A short five years ago, 60% in 2019, I believe. So this is... This has gotten the attention. Well, Donald Trump says he wants to pay people to have babies. You saw that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Incentivize young couples to have babies. What do you call it? A renewed baby boom. A new baby boom. Yeah. How How do you feel about that, folks? Because, gosh, how many, how often have you heard the refrain that, well, All this welfare is a function of incentivizing people to reproduce. That's dragging down our economy, dragging down society. We pay people. That's that's the argument against, for example, uh, Medicaid covering extending postpartum care or even covering pregnant women, which is an existing coverage group. It's uh, against the child care credits. Which, by the way, Trump increased in the Trump tax cuts. The refundable portion increased under Trump, meaning the amount you get even if you don't have a tax liability. still are into, Even if you don't work, literally, you still can get these credits, which is just welfare, just blatant welfare. So now Trump made it official. This is a plank in his platform. Let's pay people to have babies. There was some other crazy stuff, too, you were talking about earlier, wanting to change. Yeah, that wasn't anywhere near the wildest idea he came up with. I think the most outlandish was he really wants to double down the power of American industry to work on flying cars. Saw that. Now, growing up, thinking Back to the Future was a prediction of what was to come and we would have hoverboards and flying vehicles and stuff. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. The older I get, the more I realize, while it would be cool, it would also be terrifying. Because think about all the idiots that you were around every single day on the highway, and they're working in two dimensions. (laughs) It's true. They're working in forward and backward, left and right. Now imagine that same idiot behind the wheel is dealing with up and down, too. Yeah, it's true. Now I'm got, not saying I'm against the t- <laughs> technology moving forward. But until you get to a point where cars are driving themselves, flying cars pretty much need to be off the table. It's just it's another situation where it, it begs the question, what's the appropriate role of government? Should government incentivize production of flying cars? I mean, we're incentivizing production and sale of electric vehicles, which, by the way, you've probably seen that the automakers are, to some extent, receding their investment. 
because there's still issues. Duh, we know that. And sales ain't going that great. Tesla's still leading the pack, but it takes time. It takes time to work out all the various bugs, but more importantly, that which makes owning an electric vehicle inconvenient relative to a gas-powered vehicle. The market says, no, I'm just not ready yet. I'm in that camp. I'd love to have one and not have to stop at the gas station. And I think for those that generally just drive relatively short commutes, probably works for them. But if you're traveling a bit and uh, you don't want to have to deal with the hassle of making sure there are charging stations on your route, etc., those are problems. And they, again, this, when you see broad market acceptance is when the experience and the cost equals or exceeds what we're accustomed to. It doesn't matter what the technology is. That's just the way things work. Nothing unusual about that. Another idea he brought up was the beautification of America. Sure did. Wants to tear down what he considers ugly buildings. Sure did. What he considers. Which uh, may be a problem for large swaths of society because he's a big fan of gilding things and making them golden. (laughs) Not so sure that's the trend nowadays. I don't think that'd be all that popular if we just started making all the skyscrapers gilded. Right. Now, I can get behind the whole take us back to a Victorian or a classical styling on buildings <laughs> and get away from this monstrosity of brutalism. But, again, is that really what the government should be worried about? Well, let me ask you, would he benefit from that any, being in the real estate business? I mean, serious question. Probably. Yeah. I don't know if I would have gone there if I were him. He was also asked what his reaction would be should the number of legal investigations currently underway produce indictments. He said he'd keep on going. Wouldn't let that deter him from running. You saw that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We're coming right back. Stay with us. Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd at 11.05. You're listening to Middays with Gerard, Gerard Gibbert, here on Super Talk Mississippi. Great Leonard Skinner, of course, that tune. Thank you for that, Rhino. Commemorates the death of Gary Rosington, the original Leonard Skinner guitarist. Last surviving founding member of the iconic rock band, passed away at the age of 71. Yeah, they didn't give a uh, cause of death, but he has been having some heart problems. Yeah. 
including, I believe, he had an emergency heart surgery uh, about a year, year and a half ago. He was out on the road with him on tour with the the new membership, and I believe he had to leave the tour and, and have emergency heart surgery. Wow. Very sad. Uh, very sad to hear. Uh, it just feels like these rock stars that were absolute musicians on instruments, they're, we're losing them. And it doesn't feel like they're being replaced. Maybe I'm being unfair because I'm a product of the era. Well, they're not being replaced in the same way. Yeah. Uh, the the skills and the talents that they had were exceedingly rare at their time. Whereas nowadays, the technical ability to play a guitar or play a bass or play the drums or any, any musical instrument that you would see in a rock band the the barrier to to entry is much lower than it was Agreed. when the bands like Leonard Skinner or the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or these these mega groups came about because in large part they were self taught and they didn't have access to the resources to to learn at any faster pace so you really only had the musically gifted that could teach themselves. And on the rare occasion, you'd have a classically trained musician come up through the ranks and decide to do rock and roll. Totally true. Whereas nowadays, you've got 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds that are as technically gifted on musical instruments as some of the greatest rock stars of all time. But you'll only be able to hear them on their Instagram or their TikTok or whatever. Right. They, uh, you're, you're right about that. So many of them were self-taught. No doubt. Didn't have all the resources and the tools and the technology we have available today. They just mastered their particular instrument on their own. Incredible when you think about that. Many of them at a very young age. They had been playing for quite some time before they hit their prime and hit it big as recording artists Oh yeah, for a living. So it's incredible. Mark Andreessen. Little news out of him. You know who he is? All right. He's the guy that co-founded Netscape. He is the um, software engineer and co-author of Mosaic. Now, Mosaic was really the first browser that displayed Internet content in, in graphical user interface format so that the average person could use it. What we're accustomed to today, which is just this vibrant, graphical, rich content interface on the Internet, didn't exist in the early days of the Internet. It was what we call command-line text form, and it was he who put this graphical user interface on top of it to make it usable to the masses, to the average person, co-founded a, the original web browser company, its first widely used web browser, and uh, in Netscape, made a bunch of money off that. Well, he made a comment over the weekend. He says, we're heading into a world where 
A flat-screen TV that covers your entire wall costs $100, and a four-year degree costs a million. That um, seems like there's possibly some truth in that. That makes sense to me. A four-year degree for a million. And it brings up the, the issue of student loans, which, of course, is something that the Supreme Court of this country is considering, considering the action by Joe Biden to just sign away $400 billion of student loan, forgiving it, canceling it. Several states have sued, saying you don't have the authority to do that. So that's being deliberated. It does call into question, when I looked at some of the analysis of who would be impacted by that, mostly folks who make less than $75,000 a year. What I can't wrap my head around is so many of these people have $250,000, of student loan debt, and they end up with jobs making seventy five grand or less. Why? Somebody got sold a bill of goods. I just wonder. There's been a move also to hold private colleges responsible. Seen this? They're wanting to hold them legally responsible for situations where students paid them a whole bunch of money. And, of course, you're selling your services on the on the premise that you come here, you spend a bunch of money, you come out, you get a degree, and you're going to have these big, high-paying jobs. Well, that's not the case. Now, I would argue that's largely because, well, you majored in stuff that nobody pays for or wants. <laughs> and, and you did it at an institution that charges you six figures a year. Right. So it's just a, a bad combination, shall we say. You spend a bunch of money... You got this worthless degree, and now you want the taxpayers to bail you out. Now, you could make the argument as well that taxpayers pay a lot for bad behavior. Maybe it's not bad behavior, but imprudent. Let's call it that way. I wouldn't say that's bad behavior, but it was clearly it was poor decision-making. That's just the way it works. You think about, gosh, Medicare is an example where now some 40% of Medicare costs are funded by income taxes. People working today paying income taxes are paying a fairly significant amount to cover the cost of Medicare. Because it cannot function with just Medicare taxes, payroll taxes, which you're paying in, plus any return on those funds produced in investing it. Doesn't work. Now, Joe Biden has come forward. And by the way, I I talk about this because we've been discussing Social Security and Medicare on this program a lot over the last couple of years, because it's not going away. And it's something that affects every one of us. And it's starting to get a lot of attention on both sides of the aisle. The Democrats very effectively 
target Republicans and saying they want to end Social Security and Medicare. You can't vote for them, which is not true. And those who have come forward and said, yeah, this thing's going broke, we got to address it, well, they immediately get siloed into that, that category if you want to end it. So wanting to fix it is wanting to end it. Well, Joe Biden came out and said that his solution to Medicare and the underfunding of Medicare is to allocate the revenue from the net investment income tax. This just happened Friday. To strictly to Medicare. That's a 3.8% tax paid on passive investment activity. You buy a stock, you sell it, you produce a capital gain on it, you not only pay capital gains tax, you also pay, depending on your level of income, a 3.8% investment uh, income tax. And he wants to allocate that totally to Medicare as opposed to just going into the general fund. Well, that may make the numbers look better, but you're taking it out of here and putting it over there. You're not producing more revenue. So that just means you you have higher deficits in the general fund portion of spending. And maybe Medicare looks a little better. But Joe never has been the sharpest knife in the drawer when it comes to doing math. But that's his solution, other than just raising uh, taxes, the tax rate on the higher income levels. Of course, that's always on the table. They never met a tax they didn't like, especially on the most successful in society. On the other hand, this weekend, Donald Trump reiterated, nope, can't touch Social Security and Medicare. So he doesn't have a plan either. That's how we ended up with these gigantic unfunded liabilities because these candidates are only concerned about what gets them elected. They don't want to address the thorny, difficult, sensitive issues. Coming right back. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel where I'll be. I'll be just so lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be just so lonely. I could die. Although it's always crowded, you still can find some room for broken-hearted lovers to cry there in the gloom. We are back in the Element Well Studios. So on the ceasefire text line, Gerard, I believe the deep state will kill Trump before they will let him become president again, says David in Pascagoula. No, nah, I don't believe that, David. I really don't. That's pretty serious allegation. And... Uh, Really not, I'm sorry, not an allegation, but a premonition. We'll call it that. I don't th- I don't really feel like that's the case. No, because then they run the risk of making him a martyr for his cause. Yeah, and they don't want that. Um, now, does that mean that they don't want him to be the president? Well, sure. I think they'll work hard. A lot of them will to do that. But... 
honestly, they'll do the same, I believe, with any Republican candidate. It won't just be Donald Trump. Is the contempt a little deep, deeper held? Maybe. Relative to Trump, kind of puts himself out there to be loathed to the max. I would agree with that. We probably don't have as much enough time to dig into it, but a little fact-checking on what he said this weekend shows that a lot of what he said not true. Of course, we've called out Joe Biden as well for spouting untruths. He does it on a daily basis, no doubt about it. But I think Trump took some credit for things, for some things that were simply not true. Like he says he shut down the Nordstrom pipeline. He didn't. What he did do was he um, imposed some penalties on the American companies that were involved in constructing it. And so that that did cause a problem for them, but it didn't shut it down, ultimately. that It wasn't like some sort of Trump executive order that said, yep, we're not going to build a pipeline. That's just one of the examples. We had a um, nominee to run the Federal Aviation Administration that was on the Capitol Hill last week, and the the hearing was shocking, honestly. And it's another just blatant example of the march to mediocrity where one's physical attributes outweigh one's qualifications. So Philip Washington, the nominee to become administrator of the FAA, did testify before a Senate committee, I think it's Commerce, in Washington uh, last Wednesday. And he honestly didn't know anything about the nation's air activity and didn't seem to be too familiar with what the FAA does, though I think he runs the Denver airport, which is, you know, really being in charge of newsstands and coffee shops, stuff like that. FAA, you're in charge of pilots, technicians, Air traffic controllers. It's pretty complicated. You need to know something. He was asked, for example, to name the airspace system, the, the categories of airspaces to describe the airspace system in this country. At least how many different airspace classifications are there? He couldn't answer that. He was asked what the minimum distance of separation should be of commercial airliners as they approach an airport for landing. He couldn't answer that. He was asked, what causes an aircraft to stall? He could not answer that. He didn't know anything about the rules that require a certain category of transponder to be on an aircraft, at what airspace, at what flight level, elevation, altitude, is, are these uh, transponders required? Couldn't answer that. 
These are fairly simple, fundamental. Now, if you're not a pilot, I get that. You may not know if you haven't studied all that stuff. But when you're a nominee to run the FAA, maybe you ought to know a little bit about that. And every single response he gave was identical. I'm sorry, Senator, you know, I'm not a pilot. I really don't know. But you're being nominated to run the system that pilots use to cart people around. Maybe you ought to know a little bit about that. I'd be asking too much, though. Is there not someone out there that maybe is familiar with some of these issues? We're not asking you how to fly a 767 here, or whether or not you can, but having some familiarity with the system that you're going to administer, I don't know, makes sense to me. Where am I going wrong there? Coming right back with Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It's midday. Super Talk Mississippi kicking off a brand new week with that legislature still in session in 2023. Down there making all them laws. And we've got Senator Nicole Akins Boyd in the Element Well Studios. She represents District 9, which includes Lafayette and Panola County serves as the chair of the Senate Study Group on Women, Children, and Families and vice chair of Senate Universities and Colleges Committee. Is that all still correct, Senator? Yes, it is. Welcome to the program. Thanks Thank for you. coming on. So it's been uh, a fairly active session, but it 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 just seems to me like we haven't had any um, really high-profile legislation that's made it through yet. It just feels like that. Well, we're still early in the process, believe it or not, even though we've got almost just really um, under a month left. We are now at that critical juncture where um, both sides um, have bills from the other house there. And so those are being hotly debated this week. Yeah. Um, if people want to tune in and watch the legislature, those will be going on probably. See all the Wednesday. fireworks. They'll see fireworks until Wednesday night. Rhino's going to step so, in and adjust um, your mic okay, a little sorry. bit. Um, yeah, that'll be better right there. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you, yes. Um, but we've, yeah, so you'll see fireworks probably even in, late into the night, Wednesday night, if, I, <laughs> if it works like it usually works. Well, we've already had some uh, fireworks, at least over on the house side, been a fair amount. There has been a fair amount. So we hadn't quite as had quite as many fireworks on the Senate <laughs> side yet. So, but things are just getting started. So okay. I think usually this is the most contentious is when it makes it over from the other house over there, because if you were to pass that law, just the way that they sent it over, that goes straight to the governor. Right. So um, right now you've got kind of a contentious time. Um, and so you're about to see this starting probably this afternoon um, when we gavel in at four. I don't know. 
know how much we'll take up this afternoon, but but definitely Tuesday and Wednesday, you're going to see fireworks. I'm yeah. sure, just because everybody knows this is, you know, this is uh, there's no second bite at the apple here right now. This is where um, if the bill doesn't have a reverse repealer, um, you go straight to the governor. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Uh, you in uh, talk about this uh, study group on women, yeah. children, and families. Tell us so, what that's all about. Um, so this summer um, we did a study group on women, children, and families, and we looked. Um, it was after the um, Dobbs decision came down, and um, we really. T- took this opportunity to really see and we had already been talking about this in the Senate. Um, we had a large expectation um, as we were watching the court arguments last year during the Dobbs case as to which way the court was leaning just based on their questions and so it was no surprise to us when the Dobbs decision came down and so we took this as an opportunity to say really what are we doing in the state to promote women, children and families? What is it that families need? What are the kind of the things that we really need to take a deep dive with and look at? So um, we held um, a number of hearings. I had I stopped counting at 50. I personally had wow. over 50 meetings with um, different groups and entities that um, had some that was a stakeholder in the process, some shape, form or fashion. And so we crafted, um, you know, kind of a legislative agenda on those particular issues. And there's still more that we are going to go back to and that we're going to do. But we felt solid about the legislation that we were proposing for this session. So one of the pieces that's like, we'll start kind of with the with the um, early is that one of the pieces that's over there is an early intervention task force. Um, we uh, y'all, I think people have heard me say over and over again now, um, last year, I believe we served 1,562 children. We know that number should be upwards of 10,000. And it is the one of the things that has the largest ROI on education investment. So if you spend a dollar on that, you know you're going to save a tremendous amount of dollars in the long term because many of the children that get those early intervention services will never need special education services once they get to school. Yeah, They will never need then employment assistance or anything like that. And so that's why it's a critical piece that we get right in the state because that ROI is tremendous on that. So that's one of the pieces that we have over in the house right now. Um, and then we've looked at one of the other small issues that we looked at it's not a small issue is um, we were doing a great job of training some of our um, individuals in our universities and colleges and the way that we had crafted the system in Mississippi is they weren't able to be employed here so we were sending wonderful graduates to Arkansas and Tennessee and Alabama so we need to change those technicalities so both of those bills are over in the House right now, and hopefully they'll be taking those up within the next couple of days, and we can pass those on, and we can have that early intervention task force that's going to look and see how we reshape early intervention in the state to make sure that we are getting um, kids covered, and we're handling those issues early, and then we can get those kids um, healthy and whole to um, our schools. So we'll be doing that. Another issue that we really just kind of skimmed the surface with, there's a tremendous amount of issues in our adoption and foster care system right now. And um, can't say enough um, a praise about um, our Commissioner Andrea Sanders. We've been working with them. We've been working with youth court judges across the state. And so we have got a task force that would have um, all the kind of the players at the table that we could really do a comprehensive look at um, our adoption and foster care system. We've been under um, lit- we've been under a 
federal court order now for about 19 years in the state own our adoption and foster care system. And we've spent way too much money in lawyer fees and litigation fees. And that money could be used um, to help those children. So we've got a number, we've got a task force that would comprehensively look at that, make proposals to the legislature on whatever changes need to be made on those that. And so that's another bill that is over in the House right now um, that we're looking at hopeful that they'll take up and then in the senate right now we have um we have a number of bills that the house sent over and um one of them is on foster care rights um because what we found out when we were listening to all of our foster families is you know sometimes they didn't they would uh, and a lot of our foster parents work and so they would say hey you're uh, the child you're caring for right now they have a doctor's appointment this afternoon um and they wouldn't really wouldn't get that full notice that they need they wouldn't get the notice even about the kids iep meetings and their counseling appointments and things like that and so we wanted to make sure that our foster families are being treated appropriately and so we've got a bill here that we've worked with the youth court judges own and we've worked with the cps own and we've worked with foster families own and we think that bill will put that kind of in the right direction to really make sure that those foster families are getting all the due consideration that they deserve when they're taking care of these children Um, most of these children have had trauma Um, there's a lot of care that is needed for those children and we need to make sure that we are supporting those foster families as well and also so that it encourages foster families. I talked to a number of individuals who had been foster parents, but because of kind of the kinks in some of the system, and that's not every situation, but it was in a many situations that they stopped being foster parents. Mm-hmm. And so we want to encourage a healthy amount of foster parents. So that's one bill on that. The other bill is what we're, I'm calling, um, I don't know what the technical name is, but what it really is, is a path to permanency. Um, when a child comes into the foster care system, um, and what are our safe haven laws? What can we do immediately to make sure that that child gets placed in a permanent home as quickly as possible? And so we have a number of um, different things in that bill that will make sure that those children get permanency as quickly as possible and get them out of the system and into that permanent home. So we've again Youth court judges, CPS, and a number of foster parents um, have kind of come together, and we've got that bill that it kind of is ongoing um, right now in the Senate. So um, hopefully we will get that out by Wednesday and um, get that over back to the House where they can either concur or invite conference, or we can get that on to the governor. Hmm. So. Interesting. Well, the the foster care system, you know, I've talked about this before in the state. It, it's been needing uh, an update for quite some time. Right. It has. It it has needed an update, and um, CPS is doing a great job, really, at trying to really revolutionize our system within the state of child protective services. Um, we've got some judges that are really incredible, some youth court judges out there right now. Um, and so we want to make sure that we are giving them all the tools that they need and in places where it's not working, where right. we don't have great a great system um, in those pockets of the state. We're trying to put those things in place that will make sure that it is outstanding. Okay. All right, Senator Nicole Akins Boyd is our guest in the Element Well Studios. You can hang around. We got Absolutely. some more to talk about. Yeah. All right. You guys don't gather gavel until later today, yeah, right? Not till four. Okay, we're good to go. Coming right back. Stay with us.
Mornings with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. And still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm still sore about that. What can I do to get them there? I feel helpless. They need to be there. Uh, the great REO Speedwagon we're talking about. Uh, Senator Nicole Akins Boyd, our guest in the Element Wealth Studios. So, uh, no doubt, updating the foster care system, the adoption system in this state, has been sorely needed for quite some time. And so, re- regardless of... Of Roe, regardless of the postpartum uh, Medicaid expansion debate, those are separate issues from this. I, you know, this was a great opportunity to really comprehensively look at women, children, and family. Look at all those particular issues, and so we use this as as an opportunity to really look at our entire system, right? Um, from um, from when the time a mother gets pregnant to really age three is kind of where we took it and um, of a child. And so, therefore, this was something we think felt was really important to kind of know and really take a look at that. And we knew that this was an opportunity to really look at that. And so that's what we've done with this. Um, the House has done with this. And I hope that um, when we visit after April that we will have sent a great number of bills to the governor to really yeah. work and improve this system. Okay. Well, and, and the governor's office has been super supportive. They've been involved the whole time. So I feel like everybody's working together um, to really um, make some significant changes in this process. Good. All right. What's been what's been going on uh, with respect to your serving as the vice chair of the Senate? Uh, universities and colleges committee. Any action there? Um, yes. So we've got um, a number of bills um, put forth. We're looking at different. Um, we're looking at different funding opportunities and different scholarships and things right now. Um, I think you'll see those bills probably largely in conference is what I think is going to happen. And okay. so um, we'll be kind of looking at um, that legislation. That, you know, if we're going to revise some of the programs that we have right now, or if we're going to keep them the same. So um, there's there'll be a lot more to come on that. Kind of probably more towards the conference. That is my expectation that it goes okay. to conference. Yes. Shift gears a bit. What about the ballot initiative process, which uh, currently does not exist in the state of Mississippi? <laughs> so I am a co-sponsor with that legislation. Senator McCon is the primary on it. And um, so right now the House has before it um, the resolution that would need to go on the ballot um, come November that would put it um, – Basically, for um, to create a legislative, it's not a, a state process where somebody would propose, where people could propose legislation, and so it would need to replace what's on the ballot now. Since the court has said um, what we have on the ballot now is you know unconstitutional that, because it's not a workable process that they said back in the marijuana legislation. Mm-hmm. So there is a bill over in the House right now. Um, it does have a reverse repealer. So again, it's going to be a bill that goes to conference. Um, and a reverse repealer, just to remind the um, listeners out there, a reverse repealer is a, um, something you put in the bill that it, it 
enacts on the same it, it enacts and it dies on the same day and so that's to make sure that um, we um, properly discuss it and um, that's also to make sure it goes to conference um, because it would have no effect if right. it didn't do that yeah. so yeah, yeah. it's um, it has no power exactly so all right so are you okay with the increase in the uh, signature um, number I, I think I, I am okay with with um, an increase in the signature number Mm-hmm. Um, we, if we are going to put something on the ballot, you don't need something that's super easy to. You don't need something that's so easy that we get every little thing on the ballot that could possibly somebody has an idea about there. So you want to put it at a significant number on the ballot. Um, I don't know where that number will wind up. Honestly, at this point, um, I think that's something um, people are talking about right now. Um, so right now, um, I think the way the language reads. It would be 12% of qualified voters at right. the time of the last presidential election. And so um, that's kind of where it is right now in the House. We'll see kind of what comes out of the House and what kind of what happens in conference on that piece of legislation. The present model in our Constitution, which has, of course, been deemed unconstitutional, would require 12% of those who voted in the last gubernatorial election. Right. So this change would more than double that figure. It does. It does. So um, I'm not sure where we will wind up in conference on this piece of legislation. So we're going to see what happens with that. Um, It will go to conference, and um, we will see kind of um, what the House did not change that number that was originally proposed right now, but we'll see where we kind of wind up on that. Yeah, I thought they actually did change it. I thought uh, Representative Shanks said that they had uh, decided to concur with the Senate with the higher figure. But I could be wrong about that, Senator. Well, right now it is the number the Senate you know, sent over. Uh, right, so, right. Yeah. But I, so. I thought I heard him say in, in an interview that was written up that um, – at this point, that in committee they didn't modify that figure. So, yeah. But you're right. Once this goes to conference, who knows what the final number right. looks like? That's what's important at this right. point. Yeah. yeah, the conference is where I often say you really have the sausage making process. Right. So, um, but we'll see what this number kind of winds up to be when we, you know, people go to conference on this legislation. Yeah, as it should be, honestly. I yes. think something this this major uh, should be. I will say this: it's a bit ironic that the threshold to amend the constitution. Constitution is lower than what's being considered to simply make or amend statute. Well, and I do think that we wanted a little, we wanted a higher number because we want to make sure that we, when people, when we set this process up, that it's really high enough that we really get something that's important to voters, that there's been that much of a concern across the state. Um, that this is an issue that the voters feel strongly about. The other process, too, is you have so many national organizations now that have no really stronghold in the state. They are not really part of a state organization here that could come in and push a national agenda. Um, that is not something that is Mississippi-led. And so you want to make sure that these are issues that are important to Mississippians, that it's not just some group that comes in from a national level and kind of, you know, is all just following national politics. You want to make sure that it is something really that is Missis- it's an ideal that is important to Mississippi values. And I think that's kind of where the um, 
I think the number of my colleagues that I've talked to, they've really pushed that, making sure that this is something that Mississippians won't. Right. That it's not just um, something that somebody from a national group has come in and ran a flashy um, campaign on. Well, we could certainly debate this uh, uh, extensively, but I just make this point. I think by having a higher signature threshold, you're pretty much assuring that the only people that will get a measure on the ballot are the out-of-state, well-funded, well-organized entities, that, that any sort of grassroots uh, movement in the state is, is prohibitive. So I think we're pretty much assuring the only people that would do that would be very large entities that uh, have lots of resources. Yeah, I think the I think the sentiment from a number of the legislators might be right the opposite. Just yeah. candidly thinking, I that, just disagree with them. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but um, again, this is going to be um, all ironed out in conference committees. So I understand. All right, income tax elimination, which was uh, stated by the Speaker of the House at least on the House side to be top priority. Uh, looks like at this point we may not get anything. We can't seem to get consensus in the House. What, what do you think the Senate, what's the sentiment in the Senate about I, that? I think um, the sentiment from the Senate is we were, the House had said they were going to wanted to do this, or leadership had, and so I think we were all looking to see what the House did on this because they had you know, made some those statements. I will tell you, the Senate has been super focused on um, looking at um, a number of particular issues. We're still concerned very much about postpartum. Um, we feel like um, in this day and age of um, when we overturned Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs case, the Senate feels like it's very, very important that we provide that extension of postpartum care to mothers beyond that 60 days to the full year. Um, Wyoming um, was the only state in the country that did not have have, um, either postpartum extension or Medicaid. Uh, um, um, Medicaid um, expansion. In, in addition to Mississippi. In addition to Mississippi. And last week, they voted to do the 12-month extension. Texas, who only had six months, um, had not really even fully implemented their program, has already gone to 12 months. So we have these really red states um, across the country that are doing this um, postpartum extension, and Mississippi right now is the only state that has not done that. So I appreciate the leadership of the governor, the leadership of the attorney general, in really trying to say this is important, and that bill is before the House right now. So it's Senate it really wants to see that bill come through. Thanks for coming on, Senator. Yes. Good talking to you. Senator Nicole Lakins-Boyd has been our guest in the Element Well Studios. Half an hour left. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi.
wait, 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 wait. That what what it says is playing ain't what's playing. I played a little bit of it. <laughs> what version is that? It's the new one they released for the uh, Ant Man movie. Okay. I thought I was getting ready to watch a Star Wars sequel or something. (laughs) (laughs) Good grief. We are back with you in the Element Well Studios today. It is a Monday, and so the show is an hour shorter. Super Talk Mississippi Outdoors coming up next with our good friend Ricky Matthews. And on Wednesday, it's a remote. We're going to be on the road again at the Mississippi Trademark for the Mississippi Construction Education Foundation Skills Competition. Registration starts soon. Go to mcef.net for more info. Looking forward to that. Down at my home away from home, the Mississippi Trademark. Ben from Madison on the C Spire text line says, The narrative of it can be too easy is silly. Only seven measures in almost 30 years made the ballot. Talking about the the citizen-initiated ballot measure process, it was already incredibly difficult. In my opinion, Ben goes on to say, the desire to increase the signature threshold by the legislature is really aimed at ensuring no issue will ever be brought to the ballot. Mississippi will be the only state with an initiative process that is so difficult to navigate that no issue will ever make it to voters. I think there's a lot of truth there to what uh, Ben is saying. I still believe opposite than what those who in the legislature who support the higher signature threshold in that I think they're making it prohibitive for any sort of grassroots organization inside the state, and they're pretty much paving the way uh, for only those well-funded out-of-state entities with resources to uh, get a measure on the ballot uh, to do something that they'd like to see become law. Uh, That's the way I see it. Uh, There's got to be some, I think, happy medium in there. But it is true that it's not something that's used with a, a lot of regularity, very few. I do think that once we have, assuming we do, some sort of ballot initiative process that Issues that are likely to make their way to the ballot would include some restrictive access to abortion. I think there would be a, a move, and that would probably come largely from well-funded out-of-state organizations. And then also recreational marijuana is another one I think would make it. Medicaid expansion is one. Perhaps uh, term limits for legislators. I know Thomas from Greenwood's favorite, the recall process. I think all those are possible. The sale of wine in grocery stores, you've heard that. Liquor stores open up on Sunday. Those are just a few that I can think of that are things you probably hear the most about, you know, just out there in the public that don't seem to get any traction in the legislature, the Speaker of the House has said that any any bill that would reinstate the ballot initiative process should prohibit legalizing abortion as being available to the citizens as a, uh, to the citizens as a measure. That would go. Said I think he doesn't want to lose the. Uh, the progress that's been made on that front to date. 
So we shall certainly see. John from Pontotoc says uh, weed is causing it to be tougher. I'm not sure about that. Greg and Newton, the NCAA changing the flag. You know, I think a lot of folks believe that the NCAA was the impetus for changing the flag. I'd depart with that view. I don't think that was the case. I think it was something that's been pent up for a while, certainly in the Capitol, and I think the I think the George Floyd incident, which since is, has really been the catalyst for so much change in this country along those lines, I, I think that was one of them in Mississippi was changing the flag. More so than the NCAA. That's just me. But I respect your opinion there, Greg. Isn't postpartum a non-issue now since Tate said he'll do it from Derek and Greenwood? Um, no, it's still an issue, Greg. Uh, pardon me, Derek, in that it would have to pass the House. It's passed the Senate. It has um, passed out of committee in the House, but yet to be voted on in the House. Of course, are we going to we going to see changes to the bill, which would force it to conference between the Senate and the House before a measure is sent to the governor for signature? Pretty sad. I'm a rotten pilot and knew about all of those aeronautical terms, says Rick in Gulfport. That was in reference to our discussion just before we went to break at the top of the hour about Joe Biden's pick to lead the Federal Aviation Administration, who doesn't seem to know squat about, oh, I don't know, aviation. (laughs) It's crazy. But he does check all the boxes, does he not? It's the That's part. what's important, right? Sure. That's how we got pretty much our entire cabinet. All the administrators. Supreme Court picks. It's all about your physical immutable characteristics. It's crazy. It's a march to mediocrity. Meanwhile, while we're, by the way, we're all tied up now you've probably seen this rhino and injecting feelings you like to talk about that into math how do you do that what the hell's feelings got to do with getting a question right in math the the, the right value the right answer now it's feelings a pennsylvania district school district they're wanting to change the math curriculum And they want to bring feelings into the equation, pun intended there for you. The board needs to decide if they want to make social and emotional learning a part of our math curriculum, said a concerned parent. I do not believe it belongs in the math classes, is what a board member... They don't have social studies anymore. They just done away with that class. I reckon so. I don't know. I don't know. You had a whole period you could talk about that nonsense. You didn't have to inject it in everything else. Right. It's something that I thought was uh, fairly objective in nature, that being math. Pretty sure if it's not, then airplanes fall out of the sky and bridges don't really cover the space they're supposed to uh, transport vehicles from one side to the other. If Without math, if you inject feelings into uh, those procedures, those calculations... Pretty sure stuff just stops working right. 
doesn't serve society. This is really repackaging of critical race theory, is it not? There's some people who believe that seeking the right answer and grading based on achieving the right answer is racist. Rather than trying to help those maybe in the minority community that aren't faring as well in the study of math, we don't help them. We just dilute the standards and introduce feelings into the grading. That's how we solve that problem. At least they think they're solving the problem. Oh, I just don't know. The uh, And there's books that are now introducing social and emotional learning objectives into the instruction of math. They're textbooks, so that's the way they're teaching it. And they want to grade on that basis. Wow. How the heck do you give a grade on emotion? I don't know. I really don't. It's uh, it's how we end up with FAA picks that don't know squat about admit. Uh, pardon me, aviation. Same deal. But his feelings are what's important, right? We can't hurt his feelings that he doesn't know what makes an airplane stall. That he doesn't understand the airspace airspace system in this country. I can tell you as a pilot. Pretty important you understand that sort of stuff. And you want to make sure the folks running that organization that regulates air traffic, you want to make sure they understand it, too. Because you know what happens if they don't? People die. It's the truth. But that doesn't seem to ever enter the equation in the world of Joe Biden. Has the House taken it up, the postpartum issue? It has not. Derek and Greenwood ask it. No, they have not. Other than it passed the committee, the full House has not yet taken it up. Ben from Madison says Mississippi will be the only state with an initiative process that is so... Oh, yeah, we already got that. Sorry, uh, Ben. But he's right. We're trying to make it harder, I think. Is prioritizing feelings a path to wrong think, <laughs> says Thomas and Greenwood. Yeah, I don't think it was NCAA virtue signaling. I think you, uh, this is what Tom says about the flag. I think you underestimate just how strong the move was in this state to change the flag before any of that. I think they just saw that as good timing. Coming right back. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back. It is middays on a Monday, getting started this week with a Leonard Skinnard. Give me three steps. Twitter is struggling financially. It always has. I think they're the ranks of employees down to about 2,000 now. At one time, had six. But get this. Amazon says, you better pay your bills or we're turning you off. So no surprise that Amazon Web Services is the cloud hosting partner for Twitter, 
and uh, they're in arrears. They're delinquent and paying their bills because it's a bad financial model. That's the bottom line. And it is true that since Elon Musk took over, a, um, a rather large amount of advertisers have left the platform. And that's their source of income. So they ain't paying their bills, and Amazon's threatening to cut them off. Unbelievable. So this FAA nominee is just another example, in my view, of replacing merit and excellence with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, we may have some sound for you here from Bunny Sanders, your favorite rhino. He was on the Bill Maher program, and he was asked a question about equality versus equity. Take a listen. Are we confusing equality of opportunity with trying to guarantee equity and outcomes? Okay, that's interesting because I think this word equity has come into the language in the last few years, and before that we didn't hear it a lot. And I think a lot of people hear equity and they hear equality. Like it's the same word. And it's not the same word in the same concept. So how would you differentiate between equity and equality? Well, equality, we talk about... Uh, I don't know what the answer to that is. Come to think of it, you know, uh, equality is equality of opportunity. All right, we live in a society we want all people right to have whatever color your skin is. Equity, I think, is more guarantee of outcome. Is it not? I yeah, think, I think so. I think that's okay. Fine. So, which do you come? Which side do you come down on? Uh, equality. Equality. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Boys, any comment on that one? I just don't know if that's the if that's the definitional difference. Wow. Do I find myself agreeing with Bernie Sanders here? Shocking. Man. So all of these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, should they be replaced with diversity, equality, and inclusion? I've got a better idea, and I know I've said this before on the program. We don't need any of that crap. What we need, maybe to some extent, is some monitoring of exclusion. If people are being excluded because of these immutable physical characteristics and traits, such as their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, that's a problem. They shouldn't be excluded solely on that basis. If they're excluded because of qualifications, because of merit, because of performance, because of value contribution, that's the way it should work. You lost. Sorry. Somebody's better than you are. Some organization is better. But forcing inclusion and making every outcome the same in the name of this ridiculous notion of equity, because we ain't equal. And even Bernie Sanders agrees with that? Say it ain't so. What is that all about? You were shocked when he said that, weren't you? I was watching you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But he's a guy that wants to tax the ever-living snot out of the most successful in society to pay for benefits and other advantages of uh, the least successful. He wants, he's, he's on a big tour right now, uh, promoting his book, 
hate capital. What's the name of the book? Something anti-capitalism. I mean, he lives in that world. But he's promoting the book and making money off of it, by the way, which is the capitalistic way. It's okay to be it's mad. It's okay to yeah, be angry about it. capitalism. Yeah. But yet, that's inconsistent. Tickets are only $80 for the tour. <laughs> that's inconsistent with what he just said there on Bill Maher's program. Because, you see, what undergirds capitalism is making an, a, a playing field where everyone has opportunity and government gets the hell out. And then you know what happens? Winners and losers emerge in the market because the market picks the winners and losers, not government. Wow, that's completely antithetical to what this guy has been promoting his entire life. You could tell he was confused. Well, I don't really know what <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. Well, we are uh, out of time here today on the program, but we are back in the Element Well Studios again with you tomorrow. It's Ricky Matthews with Super Talk Outdoors next. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.